1: True success and happiness are all about freedom, and here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's
0: your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having someone who's actually become a great friend of mine. I think we met probably two years ago. I think it was at the Austin GoBundance summer event. It's interesting. We're going to have a great conversation because as we were prepping for the show, I was talking to Daniel, and it's it's super cool because this guy's just done a lot. He's he's one of those guys that you really have to get to know before you really understand how successful he is. And I think you're going to learn so much today because he has really just done a lot in life. I mean, I've I've we've had plenty of dinners together and have just sat around and have drinks. And every time I'm with this guy, like I just get to hear some amazing story about you know flying around in trains and planes and automobiles, etc., and having amazing dinners all over the world and. More importantly, what I really appreciate about Daniel is he's a family man. As he's built out his success and the portfolio and a construction company and everything that he's got going, you can just really tell that he keeps his family as a priority. And I've said this so many times. Like as we're building out all this that we do and we're investing for our freedom and everything else, I'm just reminded of that scripture. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And I always think of it in terms of like, what does it profit us to build out an empire yet lose our family and when I look at Daniel and his wife and his children, they've done a lot of great things, and you know, as he'll tell you, it always hasn't been perfect, but they've done a lot of great things and they've kept that intact. And so, I'm really uh, I admire that. And so, Daniel Casey, thanks for being on the show.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so let's uh, let's dive into the questions, and then we'll get into like who you are and what you do and all the good stuff. So, who has had yeah. the greatest impact on your life?
1: <laughs> okay, so great. I actually thought about this because I know I've heard enough of your podcast to know these questions. I'd have to say this is sort of a three-part answer. The the quick and easy answer is my dad. My dad is is an amazing example of a servant leader. He's probably one of the most humble people I know, and at the same time, one of the most successful. He's he's been a big influence. And then I also have uh, kind of the proverbial rich uncle, my my wife's uncle, Bob, um, who I've known my whole life because we all grew up at the same church. And I don't know him well, and I wouldn't say he was a mentor, but it was kind of more of an example of, you know, what a very successful believer's life can look like. He was uh, the kind of person that just everything he touched turned to gold. He had, you know, dozens of different businesses. He, you know, made a lot of money, but he was also very generous with it. And he was really dedicated to his family. And so he was, you know, he was kind of a, you know, when I was young looking up at him, it was he was kind of an example of somebody you know, that I wanted to, that I wanted to emulate. And then in a more practical sense and I might've told you this story before I got tangled up with a con artist, um, about 15 years ago. And although most of my interaction with this guy was negative, I would say that it probably had one of the most profound influences on my life because he really showed me that, you know, all the kind of lies we tell ourselves about how you have to have resources to get by. And it was, you know, and and he actually convinced me to buy one of my most significant pieces of real estate. And it's because at the time I wouldn't have thought I, I, I didn't think I deserved it, or I didn't think I had the means to do it. And he basically convinced me that, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And, um, you know, thanks to him, you know, we've made quite a bit of money off of that particular building, but, you know, he just taught me a lot of life lessons. And even though he was a criminal and a, generally bad guy, I think there was just a lot of, you know, kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things.
0: You know, it's such an interesting perspective. And I love that you could, you know, take a negative experience. And you have told me that story. And I think if we have some time, I, I'd like to get just like the, the 30,000 foot view, because it is funny, although it wasn't probably funny at that point in time. But I think it's great the perspective that you take on it, because even one of your Probably most negative experiences in your life, like you learned so much. And, uh, you know, I've thought about that for years. There was a guy that I actually, this was when Kara was pregnant with my third child and I was working out of town. The construction superintendent that was running that job was probably one of the worst people that I've ever worked for. And yet he taught me so much. Like he taught me so much about deadlines and things that were impossible. He'd be like, you got to have this done by tomorrow afternoon. And I'm like, there's no way it's impossible. And we would get it done. And so, I love the perspective that you bring with that. That even through the negative experiences and everything, you know, you turned it to something uh, a learning experience.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, you know, being incredibly optimistic is you know my greatest strength and my greatest weakness, and it's probably what makes me susceptible to fall for con artists in the first place. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, the thing is, you know, there's there's kind of no point in getting too down on things. You know, stuff happens, and you know, you either you either wallow in it or you learn from it and move on. So, you know, we, we definitely, I mean, I definitely look back and view the whole con artist chapter as a uh, valuable learning experience. I'm not sure my wife has the same opinion about it. But, uh,
0: <laughs> did, she but, you know know,
1: did she get to know him? Um, did she get to know him pretty well? She did. And I'll tell you, she was, she was onto him from day one and I should have listened to her. You know, she was skeptical of him and thought something was off about him from the very beginning. And I kind of wanted to just blindly blindly believe that there was uh, you know, I kept on trying to, you know, ex, you know, you know, make excuses and find the, you know, find the silver linings all the time. But uh, yeah, I should have listened very early on.
0: I mean, I, I feel like after all this conversation, we have to dive in. Do you mind diving into this a little bit? Sure, and just, sure. Go yeah. for it. just, I know we've talked about this many different times and it can be a 30 minute story in itself, but give us like the three minute version.
1: Well, so, so the, the three minute version is, is I had a business partner in my, in my construction company, And this guy was introduced to my business partner at his church. And the story was that he was a contractor who was moving back to the Seattle area from Alaska and that he had gotten himself entangled in some sort of massive lawsuit with some large, uh, you know, large telecommunications companies because his business was that he installed, you know, cable lines like utility lines. And, and so basically these lot the fighting these lawsuits had bled him dry but that he had you know this multi hundred million dollar settlement that was just days or weeks or months away from landing in his lap and he just basically needed a little help to get by and then he you know he was a very uh kind of gregarious friendly outgoing person he seemed very well connected he knew lots of people and, you know, he was also just kind of a business guy. So he was excited about hearing about our business and all the things. And, you know, he basically, you know, acted as if he was really interested in investing with us or partnering with us or, you know, connecting us to people that was kind of like he just needed a few thousand bucks to make ends meet or this or that. And over the course of, I don't even know what the total time frame was, maybe 18 months, I think he probably bled us for about $200,000 in total. I mean, it was all, it got a little more complicated than just 2000 bucks here and there, but yeah, I mean, so that, and, and in the end, you know, he didn't turn out to have, I mean, in the end, it turned out to, I think be a hundred percent, just a complete scam, but he had a bunch there, there was us and probably another at least half a dozen sort of major players in his, and, and part of, part of what made his scam work was that he was using each of us to make him look credible to, The next guy, so you know, he would take me along with him on on you know business trips, and he would introduce me as his partner. And so I have credibility. You know, you could you could look me up and find a background. You know, my company was real. You could see jobs we were doing. And so I think other people would figure, well, if Daniel's real, then Ron must be real. You know, and I was doing the same thing with other people that he was introducing me to. And and it turns out we were all just being kind of strung along. <laughs> That's interesting. Is this the same guy that you'd get on jets with or was that it? A- yeah. So one of the, well, there was, there was two different people that he was trying to work this scam with that were in the private jet business. One of them was actually in the yacht manufacturing business. And one of those guys, you know, Ron basically told him his whole story and explained, and he acted as if he was shopping for a jet, you know, as soon as the, uh, you know, as soon as the settlement cleared and the money came in, he was looking to buy a jet, and he acted like he was particularly interested in this guy's. And he was looking to sell it, so he basically let us demo the jet for, uh, you know, over the course of, I don't even know what it, you know, six or eight weeks. I think I logged something like forty-five hours on this guy's jet, <laughs> theoretically on on the con artist's dime, you know, who was supposed to be paying the guy, and and you know that guy never got paid anything for it. It was he just got totally totally stiffed for the jet time, you know, but, you know, that was kind of the, you know, he was just one of the casualties. Yeah.
0: Well, and I, again, I think, you know, your outlook on it, the the way you even, you know, have explained that story and everything else, it just, there's bad actors out there, right? But you've got so many more positive stories. Um, I, you know, I think sometimes people would let a situation or a circumstance like that, oh, I'm never going to trust anybody again, but obviously, you know, we've got to have partnerships and work together in life and everything else. And Unfortunately there's bad actors but you just move on, right?
1: Yeah, no exactly. And I and I mentioned at the beginning he did encourage me to, you know, to purchase our office building. So when when I met him at the, when we first met each other, we were leasing an office just in some, you know, some big building in, you know, the town we we live in. And you know, he was the one who kind of said, "Why are you wasting your money on on a lease? Just go buy a building." And I'm kind of like, "Well, we don't have the money to buy a building, right?" Like I mean, I'm just assuming you have to have millions of dollars to buy office buildings. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of the, you know, person who sort of pushed through those beliefs and just was like, no, 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 you just go, just go call the banker, tell him, tell him all your big plans, tell him what you're going to do, you know? And it really, I mean, he was really the catalyst for, you know, for us going and buying an office building. And so we actually, we bought an office building in some respect, horrible timing, but again, it worked out. We bought it in 2008. So right before the whole real estate collapse. And then the plan was that we were going to, it was a, it was a health club. it was It's currently was a health club. We were going to convert it to an office building. And then our company was going to occupy the upstairs and we were going to rent out the downstairs to tenants. And so the upside of buying a building in 2008 was we were doing all those renovations in that little window of time. But when all of the you know, when all the residential and commercial contractors hadn't quite accepted that the world was coming to an end. And so they were still trying to keep all their guys employed. And so we basically got all of our renovations done at a fraction of the cost because people were, were just bidding costs to do things to keep their guys busy. So we got a really, really nice, we had a lot of really, really nice work done for a really affordable price. And then the downside was we couldn't get any tenants in there and it sat vacant for the next couple of years. And so it was it was pretty rough at one point in time, you know, at one point in time, we were, you know, definitely upside down in the building, but then as things started coming back, the building went up in value. We were eventually able to get it leased out, uh, started cash flowing. And then the big benefit of that was as we were in growth mode again in 2013 and 2014, having that asset on our books gave us a lot of credibility. And so, you know, it was kind of, even though it had been a big hardship and, at some point in time, it probably seemed like a big mistake when it was, you know, upside down by a few hundred thousand dollars. You know, having that, you know, kind of multi-million dollar asset sitting on our balance sheet was a a big was a big benefit when we were trying to, you know, borrow money for other things or buy other buildings. It gave us that, you know, that kind of credibility. So it was, you know, in the end, I think it was a real positive.
0: Yeah, and I don't, you know, I, I can't answer this for you, but looking, you know, maybe you weren't thinking about this then, but you know, one of the things that newer investors um, constantly just talking through is just making sure that if something happens, you can carry that asset through a downturn, right? Because there's ups and downs and I don't think that any of us can time that. In fact, we're getting ready to sell our house. And I remember in 2018 telling my wife, yeah, as long as we're going to keep that house for 10 years, I'm fine because we're at the top of the market. I was thinking 2018 was the top of the market. So right. my point is, I don't think that any of us can time the market. And so you, I think you dropped a valuable lesson there. And I don't know exactly what you had to do, but you were able to carry that building through, through all that and through the vacancy and everything else. And I think that's real key for, for newer investors is making sure that you know, we don't get over our skis because we're always like, oh yeah, well, it's cash flowing $100 a month or whatever. Well, that's fine. But if that building's empty or that house is empty, can you, can you carry it through a downturn?
1: Yeah. Well, and in this case, I mean, this might be not the ideal example of what you were just describing, but, you know, we actually were, you know, it wasn't, we, you know, we didn't have the cash flow to maintain it. So, I mean, we actually went a number of months unable to make the, you know, interest payments on the building, but it did really open my eyes to the idea that we tend to think of the world in black and white sort of terms, right? It's either going to succeed or it's going to fail. You know, you're looking at a project and you tend to have that mindset of, okay, well, here's all the numbers, this is how it works out. And you tend to think that it's either going to be a success or it's going to be a complete failure. And the reality is, is almost everything falls in the gray area in between. And I think what it opened my eyes to was that there's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong before you actually get to the absolute worst case scenario. Mm. And, And in this case, you know, we were certainly not the only real estate owner in Washington that had a distressed asset. And certainly the banks didn't want anything to do with putting more distressed assets on their books. So even though it was painful and even though it was very, you know, it was, there was some hard moments and it was very upside down, you know, there was a path through and we just had to be willing to have some hard conversations and, you know, put in the effort and have some patience and in the end it paid off. And it certainly didn't pay off the way we thought it was gonna when we bought it, but it kinda of illustrates that there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of gray between raging success and dismal failure.
0: Yeah. Well and you said it you, you said something in there. You said, you know, having a lot of hard conversations. And I think that's one thing that, you know, even recently going through COVID last year, like I think I think every time you take those knocks you get a little bit more seasoned and Immediately, when something like COVID hits, like we go talk to our bankers, we talk to our lenders, we talk to everybody, right? And just have the communication piece. And so, when you said have have hard conversations, what did that look like?
1: Well, so at that point in time, I mean, not just on that building, but just we had a handful of other other financial problems related to you know related to the you know loved, like you know we, we shut down we shut down our construction company in that same time period. So we, there was a lot of conversations, and, and my experience was. I always worried about them and, you know, much more ahead of time than they were never as bad, I guess, as I thought they might be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was calling calling creditors and letting them know that, hey, we're not going to be able to pay. This as agreed. You know, we're going to need we're going to need to work out a plan. We're going to need to figure something out, you know, calling calling the bank and just saying, hey, look, like, you know, we're not going to be able to make the mortgage payment this month. And, and frankly, I'm not sure if we'll be able to make it, you know, for the next several months. And, you know, this is what we're, this is what we're hoping to do. We want to, you know, we're trying to get tenants in these spaces downstairs. As soon as we get those filled, we'll start having enough money to make the payments. And then, you know, it just kind of, whatever the workout plan is. Mm -hmm. And some of those conversations were awkward and they didn't all go exactly how I would hope. But for the most part, they were almost always, they were almost always better than I expected. And I always felt better after having them than I did, you know, than, than I did beforehand.
0: That's so valuable. You know, everybody always wants to talk about the wins and we got all the, Real estate gurus talking about how amazing real estate is, and it's painful sometimes. Not just real estate, but business in general, right? And so, I appreciate the um, openness. So, if you could narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what would
1: that be? Oh, like I'd have to say that the probably the biggest impact on my success would just be, you know, kind of sheer optimism. Mm. (laughs) And you know, like I think my I think my number one kind of value add skill is that I I can see opportunities and things that sometimes other people don't see the opportunity in, and so some some intentional creativity and you know just kind of a willingness to to find a path forward and stick it out. I mean, I think that's ultimately been our you know been kind of our biggest key to success.
0: I love it. When I joined the real estate guys mastermind, which was actually the first mastermind that I ever was really in. There was a questionnaire, and it said, "You know, what is your greatest weakness?" And I've said the same thing you did. My greatest strength is also my greatest weakness, and it's I'm the eternal optimist. And you know, but I would take it all day long, just even listening to you, because you know, every once in a while, it gets me in trouble. Sometimes I, you know, the whole theory of lost constraints and sunk costs, that kind of stuff. Like, I just think, no matter what, at the end of the day, like there's there's no like we we can we can make this work. And a couple times. You know, I've drug some things out further than what I probably should have. But for the most part, I think that optimism really serves me. And so I can totally relate to that.
1: Yeah, no, I I mean, I have the exact same, Uh, you know, I I can, I can, you know, I try to always find the, see the best in everybody. And like where it's really bit me and bit me before is, you know, with personnel decisions, Mm. I tend to always, you know, see the potential in people. And so I've definitely hung on to people longer than I should have. You know, even though I probably had good indicators early on that I should have cut them loose, you know, I kept on wanting to believe that we could make it work or that, it, you know, that's probably where it's really hurt me the most. But, but yeah, I totally relate to that. I, you know, I have to, I have to find ways to temper my optimism sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. And, and when it comes to, pe- I'm the same when it comes to people too. But, and I think part of that is because like you can recognize potential, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think people no, number one values and morals don't align with their potential. But number two, I think sometimes people can't see it in themselves. Like you recognize it more than they do. Does that resonate?
1: Yeah. No, I think that that's true. It, well, and I thought it, there's a little bit. Like, this goes hand in hand with the whole optimist thing, but there's also a little bit of that gambler mentality, mm. where for some reason the same return is a little more fun if everybody else didn't see it coming. <laughs> you know. So like, I kind of always, am, especially when it comes to people. I have this desire to find that diamond in the rough, like it, it's going to make me feel that much. You know, if I hire the person who's a sure thing and they work out, then it's like, oh, yay, you know, you hired yeah. a great person and they were great. But if you hire that person who had no track record and you just, you know, saw them on the sidelines and, and realized that they'd be a good fit, then they turn out great. That just feels like so much more of a win. And, I, and that's kind of a, on one hand, that's probably that's probably a mindset that really works against me in a lot of ways. But But yeah, there is that kind of, you know, I'm always looking for. I'm always, I'm always intrigued by the possibility of finding those diamonds in the rough. I love it. That's great. What was your greatest setback, and what did you learn from it? My greatest setback, you know, so when we, when our construction company failed in 2010, it led to us uh, personally declaring bankruptcy in 2011. You know, there was a, probably a lot of different things that led up to that that setback, and and I think it taught us a handful of things. And when I want to say, as yes, me and my wife and I you know, one, one big thing is now that w- when we started over and kind of built a business back from scratch, we knew a lot of the things we didn't like about the way our lifestyle was set up with the first business. And so now I've got, I've got a business that I love what I do and, you know, I love the success we have with it, but it's very much on my own, on my terms. And it's kind of like, I'm not, I'm not willing to compromise our priorities in terms of family and relationships and Just sort of the lifestyle we want to live, so that's probably a big one. Uh, The other thing is, I think having actually gone through, you know, sort of that rock bottom kind of experience, I think the I think the big lesson we learned was it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. Mm. I think I remember I can remember conversations in in two thousand ten between me and my wife and between me and my business partner and you know, just kind of the fear of not knowing what was going to happen. I mean, I was I really didn't know what was going to happen. I think I thought, you know, people were going to, you know, show up with a moving van and start hauling away all my stuff. And, you know, it's like, I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was, there was so much fear and I didn't think I'd ever be able to start another business. I had all this, I had all these misconceptions and then going through it and realizing that, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we're, we were healthy, our kids were healthy. We had a strong, we had a, you know, a, Solid marriage, happy family. Like we live in America. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like a lot of it wasn't that we were never without food or, you know, it was like Mm -hmm. the whole thing was significantly less painful than I feared it would be. And so I think that gives me a lot of confidence now Mm -hmm. where um, I don't, you know, even at the beginning of COVID, I feel like I have a lot of friends who maybe they got through the last recession kind of like white knuckling it, but they never actually hit rock bottom. Uh-huh. And so I don't think they realize how, you know, they have a different perspective. And I, and I feel like there was a lot of people at the beginning of, of COVID when, you know, the market was crashing and everyone, you know, people were concerned. I think that there was a lot of people who were afraid of, you know, failing or afraid of a collapse and, and having kind of gone through it once, it, it doesn't seem nearly as scary to me.
0: It kind of moves the risk barrier. I guess not. Not not that it's any further away, but that I'm case, the worst case scenario is I've already been there and I'll get back faster.
1: Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. It's not. It's not that I have any desire to go through that again. And hopefully, I've learned some lessons that would allow me to avoid it better. You know, a second time around. But it's just that idea that you know, even at even at rock bottom, life's still pretty good. Yeah. So
0: let's dissect this a little bit because you know, obviously, we're in go abundance together. I, we don't need to talk about your net worth and everything like we would at GoBundance, but obviously you're, you're worth a million because that's the barrier to entry. And, and I happen to know, you know, you're doing quite a bit better than that. So you went from bankruptcy. Tell, tell me the other side of that because I mean, obviously that wasn't that long ago. So what'd that look like?
1: Yeah, so, you know, so okay kind of, the quick timeline was we declared bankruptcy in 2011. We sort of screwed, Scratched around doing various things, basically trying to pay the bills, you know, for a couple of years, 20, 2011, 2012, I was, you know, my my background was as a contractor. And so we were doing small construction projects as a subcontractor on on kind of commercial work, which was really the only thing going at that time of, in the economy, the big, the big thing then was a lot of those, there was a lot of retail spaces that had been uh, vacated by some big bankruptcies that happened in the downturn. And so there was a lot of different, you know, businesses that were kind of scooping up those vacant spots. So there was a lot of work in our area doing these commercial tenant improvements. So we did a lot of, we just did the stuff we knew how to do. We did demo, we did concrete cutting. We actually hung some acoustical ceilings. Uh, We were just basically anything we could do to pay the bills. And it was basically myself and I had one key employee who had stuck with me through the whole thing. And then we kind of hired a few other people here and there, but it was really small for a couple of years and then we started to gain some traction. 2013, 2014, we started to do work as a general contractor. By 2015 and 2016, we were doing some larger projects. We were starting to do some, you know, four or five hundred thousand dollar uh, general contracting projects where we were subbing out most of the work and we were just self performing bits of it. By that time, I probably crossed the million dollar threshold somewhere. I don't, I don't know exactly because I wasn't actually measuring it you know, on a regular basis back then, but probably somewhere around 2016, mainly because some real estate we had had, had appreciated enough that we were kind of back in the black and we probably crossed the million dollar mark. And then that's when, and so then 2016, 2017, we started doing some much larger construction projects. We kind of, for the first time, started putting a little money in the bank and and then in 2018 we made a complete shift and decided that we wanted to get into real estate investing full time and wanted to stop stop being a contractor for other people, and so bought our first eightplex. We bought an eight-unit apartment building using that the, that little bit of money that we had kind of uh, sacked away in twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen. We were able to use that for the down payment on an eight-unit building, and then went from there. We bought an eight-unit building, and then a twelve-unit building, and then a ten-unit building, and then a thirty-unit building, and then. As we were talking about earlier, we just closed last week on a 52-room hotel, and I'm closing on Tuesday on a 64-unit apartment community, which is actually our first real full-size apartment community. It's multiple buildings with a clubhouse and a pool, and you know, it's actually kind of a full community as opposed to one standalone building. And and we don't and we've gotten completely out of the customer construction world. We kind of we worked off our backlog, and somewhere around the end of 2019, we did our last completed our last customer construction project. And now all of the construction work we do is on our own properties.
0: Wow. So you, you guys decided to, I just want to make sure that I'm in 2018, you guys decided to really stop performing outside of yourself. And that's when you started investing in real estate. And so that was like three years ago.
1: Yeah, that was three. Well, yeah, we're almost not even quite three years ago from when we actually bought the first eight We, wow. I probably made the decision. I, I, I don't remember the exact date, but somewhere in the 2016 timeframe, I don't even know. It was one of those, it was kind of one of those weird random events, but I can specifically remember it was a Sunday morning. I was reading CNBC on my phone. And if you follow CNBC at all on Sundays, they tend to post a lot of kind of personal development, personal finance type stories. And I just ended up sort of reading one article and then kind of going down the rabbit hole of clicking the links and reading more stuff. And it just really got me, it was like my first time my eyes were ever open to the whole concept of personal development. And as a result of that little, you know, reading episode on a Sunday morning, I ended up reading a couple of books. One of them was The Slight Edge. And one of the things in The Slight Edge was he challenges, you know, you to read 10 pages of a good book every day and how how that can change your life. And so I really committed myself to doing that, and, and then, so that was kind of all 2016. I started reading this. Was, I, I'd never been an avid reader. And I, in this, I kind of committed myself to this habit and I started reading, I started really researching morning routines, which led me to the miracle morning, which led me to David Osborne, which led me to Go Abundance, And it, you know, so it was all, it, there was kind of this transformation once I, once I got my eyes open to this kind of new way of thinking. And in that time frame, I realized that, I'd been a contractor for basically at that point about 16 years. And we had always enjoyed a relatively comfortable lifestyle, but we really had nothing to show for it. Like the only thing I had to show for it at that time was at that time I had three, well, four primary real estate assets, my primary residence. I had a duplex that I had bought when I was 20 years old. And it was basically, I, it wasn't meant to be an investment property I didn't even know what house hacking was. I just bought it because it was the cheapest thing I could buy yeah. to live in because I had somebody I couldn't afford a house on my own and I needed somebody to pay half the rent so you know I bought that duplex and I still had it and then we had that office building that I talked about and then we had picked up a couple of years earlier we had picked up a small industrial building and again, it wasn't an investment I just I needed a shop for the construction company and I couldn't bring myself to pay rent to somebody and so i I bought this building and so anyhow, I'm sitting here in two thousand and sixteen and realizing that after 16 years of doing construction work, the only thing I had to show for it was the handful of pieces of real estate I had bought along the way. And I kind of opened my eyes to this idea that I needed to do something that was building, you know, building something like having some, some value, you know, construction companies are really only, you know, you're only as good as your people or your next project. There's mm-hmm. not really, I mean, maybe you can own a little equipment, but there's not, there's not really any intrinsic value typically. Yeah.
0: It's an interesting, I've I, fi- I found myself having this conversation a lot lately because, you know, you had your construction company, which was spinning off cash, obviously, and allowing you to live a certain lifestyle, which is important. But then you started investing in assets, which help, like kind of, you know, compound and create the wealth side of things. And this is what I've been finding myself having a lot of conversation around lately. Sometimes I- I've seen a lot of times where you know, people go out and buy one or two or three properties and they get the itch, if you will, and then it's like, well, I'm I'm gonna, you know, basically retire on my real estate investments. And I, I'd just love to get your thoughts on this, because I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago and I said, Well, what's your number? And they're like, What do you mean? And I'm like, Well, you say you wanna retire on real estate and this person's like thirty-two years old. And I'm like, What's your number? And and they're like, Well, if I could get ten grand a month, like I'd be super happy, right? And I'm like, well, what do you got right now? And they're like, well, I'm at like $350 a month. And I'm like, so basically, if you got $100, you know, you got $100 a month or even $200 a month per unit and you want to get to $10,000, like, you got to have a pretty big portfolio, right? So what's your thoughts right. on, because obviously you shifted, but I think the key thing is you said you, know, you had done this for 16 years and you started buying some real estate out of necessity, but now you've really become you're running a real estate investment company, right? Is that accurate?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's our primary business. Yeah. I mean, we're a, we're a real estate investors, or, or maybe maybe you could call us a developer because we do a lot of we do a lot of kind of heavy you know heavy value add you know basically redevelopment. But yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, that's that's our full time gig now.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's really that's the thing I wanted to point out because what you guys do is you go buy an asset and then with your internal construction team and management process and everything else you really force a lot of value in those assets, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think sometimes people have like a misunderstanding of what passive real estate investing is versus you're running like legitimately an investment business.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we are very, very active investors, right? Like the thing is, if you're talking, if you're on that passive to active continuum, we're all the way at the far end of it. And, and honestly, so when we first, when I first started thinking about this, and I don't know if I had already bought my first safe flex or if I was just in the process of it, I ran into, to Jay Scott at the, at, at the, uh, whatever the bet the big badass Northwest real estate company, whatever the thing is Carl Yarber puts on. Yep. And I was talking to, talking to Jay and I was telling him about what I did. And he said something to me that really like was like a light bulb that went off in my mind. And he, and he kind of said, you know, you've really got to, Make sure that you mentally keep your active strategy and your passive strategy separate. And and I think what he was getting at was, so when you buy an asset, like, when we, like you know, for us, if we buy an apartment building, and then we do a bunch of value add renovations, and then we refinance that apartment building, and if we essentially choose to keep it, those are really two totally separate transactions. It's really like we did a flip, and then we bought it. Yep. Yeah. And you've kind of got to recognize that like, you know, so for me, it was this real kind of aha moment that was like, we make money doing the flips. You know, once we flip them, you know, that's where we create all the value. We create all the value and we buy it in some sort of a distressed or semi-distressed situation. We do all of the hard value add work, both the construction and the management to get it up to market value. Once it's at market value, we have the option to sell it at that point. If we choose to hold it we're essentially choosing to buy our own project and sure we save the real estate commissions, but I mean, it's really, it, you know, and so keeping that, I think for a lot of investors, especially, you know, we talked to a lot of guys in go abundance who are in some stage of beginning their real estate investing career. And I think it's key for people to realize that there's, you, you don't have to, your active and your passive strategies. Don't have to link, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like if, if the best way you can create value is by flipping houses in Omaha and the best way you can earn a return on your long-term investments is by, you know, owning Airbnbs in Florida, then like, then just be clear about what you're doing. You know, yeah. and don't, don't hold on to the Omaha houses because you already flipped them and you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it, like, you know, I yeah. think there's, I think a lot of people, bl- you know, blur the lines between their active and their passive strategies.
0: Yeah. One of my eyes was open to this or my eyes were, I guess, if we're getting mm-hmm. correct. But Your eye, like, okay. yeah, my eye. I like it. We're gonna get this right <laughs> at some point. <laughs> um, I was talking with Ken McElroy, you know, I don't know, this was probably in, you know, 20, 2016 or something, and he was talking about just the cycles in the market. And he pointed out exactly what you just said to me because you know, they've got a property management company, they have an investment fund, they buy distressed assets that they'll hire contractors, they'll go force value, but they also buy land and they're a developer and a construction company, but they go through cycles. When asset prices are lower and they can get good deals, they'll buy assets that they get good deals on and then they go in and they remodel them and, and then they own that in the investment company and their property management company manages it, obviously. But during that same period of time, they're buying land because they know that, in the other side of the cycle they're not going to be able to buy assets at an affordable price and so they'll do ground up construction and hmm. but but he's very like they have a construction company that's completely separate they have a development company that's completely separate they have a property management company that's completely separate and then their investment company is separate as well and they go through these different cycles and when you were saying that it totally resonates with me just you know the way that Jay Scott said it 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 makes such a good point so let me ask you this question what is your outlook I mean, are you guys going to just keep you're you're pretty good at the construction side self-performing. There's a lot of guys that are like wanting to get out of their business. Like I just mm-hmm. I, I want to I don't want to do my business anymore. It's a headache and they feel like they're a prisoner to their business. I don't see that with you.
1: Yeah, I'm not married to the construction side of it per se, but I do love what we're doing, you know, kind of overall. I don't have any huge desire to you know, to hit some numbers so that I can retire. I mean, I, I was actually had, this, I just had this conversation. Well, I've had it with a couple of different people, but i had it with my wife and then a, a few other people recently. I, I don't actually envision any point in time in my future where I'll be able to sit there on any given day. And like, you know, yesterday I was employed and tomorrow I'm retired. I, I just don't, I view I view it as more of a evolution. You know, I'm sure that five years from now, I'll be doing different things in my business than I do today. And five years after that, I'll be doing different things and five years after that, I'll be doing different things. And, you know, and I think hopefully if things go according to plan, like at some point in time, you know, my my daily business activities might look a lot more like golf than they do, you know, going into an office, but it'll still be building relationships and doing deals and, you know, mentoring people and helping to, you know, lead a team and all those types of things. I just figure that as as I get older and as the business matures, you know, my role will change. But I I, yeah, I don't have any... I don't have any aspirations for retirement.
0: I think there's a freeing, I guess, component to that. I was having a conversation the other day with a guy who's super successful, great construction company, great property management company, has over 100 units. And he was really feeling this pressure to like just move away from the active side of the business and move more passive long-term. And I'm, as we really started getting through the conversation, I'm like, why do you... Because he loves what he does, Right. And what it really came down to is he feels like there's just so much pressure within some of our circles to where like construction and active income and all this stuff is a bad thing. And I don't necessarily look at it that way. I look at the, I've said this before, but when I sold my first business, I've often said it was the best and worst day of my life because I'm 34 years old and I'm literally retired. And I'm like, now what? What's my purpose? What am I going to wake up to every day? But when I see guys like you, you're running a business, you've got a great portfolio. And yet you enjoy your life. You enjoy your family. You enjoy your time. So you can have all the above, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, for sure. You know, they, yeah, the whole idea of, well, I mean, what's the cliche, you know, don't, uh, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the whole point is to build a life where there's not a separation between work and life. You know, it's just life. Like, I don't, you know, I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy, I enjoy, you know, traveling with my family I enjoy coming down here to Palm Springs I you know I enjoy I just kind of enjoy the whole package and it all fits together it's not I don't have I don't I don't worry about you know oh did I spend too many hours at the office this week or whatever you know I just do what I you know we just do what it needs to be done and it's mm-hmm. it's a you know it's it's all in harmony I suppose maybe work-life harmony is the key not work-life balance but yeah I love that yeah I don't, yeah. Yeah, it's,
0: There's actually a guy that I've gotten to know pretty well. He was on the podcast at one point in time. His name's Kyle Depp, And he's become a great friend. But he puts on these events for high-performing entrepreneurs. And and he calls it work-life rhythm, which I think when you say harmony, that relates, right? Because like you said, there's no balance. Like you can't, it's not always going to be like 30% work, 30% family, 30% fun. And there's rhythms. There's times that we got to work a little harder in this area or we got to get in and COVID was a great example. I mean, we had to really dig in and figure out some business stuff. But then, man, the other side of that, we had a shit ton of family time, right? There was like, there were, I had more family time last year and our businesses did better going through COVID than ever.
1: Yeah, no, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty wild.
0: What is the piece of advice that you find yourself sharing
1: the most? You know, so this is probably a result of the types of circles that I, I run in most of the time. But with, you know, within the Abundance community, we have a lot of guys who are in that, you know, one to $2 million range and who, or who are kind of in there, they've got a successful W2 job and they're planning their exit and they're trying to figure out how they're going to, you know, start their own business or start investing full-time or something like that. And, you know, what I've, what i like what I've told people and this kind of, I think my personal philosophy is when you're running in that, when you're kind of in that sub million dollar range, when you've got a stable W2 or a stable income, even if, it, even if it's your own business, you've got a stable income and you're trying to figure out how do I get to the next level? I'd say, you know, when you're in that first phase, it's figure out what it is you can do that provides the greatest amount of value and do as much of it as you can. Live cheap, house hack if you can, make your, you know, get your living expenses as low as possible. And basically just work and build up, uh, you know, build up a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a nest egg. And then when you get to that, you know, when you kind of get to that next level, like let's suppose you cross that, you know, somewhere around that million dollar threshold. And this is where I feel like a lot of people get given bad advice. Uh, I'm trying to think how, how to best say it. Like, you know, you get a lot of that, like I, I've heard it been said by a handful of people that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think they maybe say it backwards. But, and they're always saying it in the idea that, you know, it's better to go, go far as a, as a group. But I actually think that when you're in that, you know, kind of one to $2 million stage. Like, I think the real, the real way you gain traction is with, you know, discipline and strategy and hard work. And I think that if you put too much effort into partnerships and, you know, complicated business arrangements, or you distract yourself with too many, you know, kind of have, you know, have a few eggs in a bunch of different baskets, people really kind of dilute themselves. And you see a lot of guys that get sort of stuck in that, in that one to two or, you know, two to $3 million range and they just can't quite get traction. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the advice I typically have for those types of people is, you know, figure out what it is you're doing, what's your primary strategy, and then just do it. You know, put all your eggs in one or two baskets and, you know, really work at it. You know, don't be afraid, you know, you don't, this isn't the time in in your life to be diversified. You know, this is the time to, you know, you go all in and, you know, you know, if you're if you're worth a million and a half dollars and you go all in and you end up making a bad investment, you lose half a million dollars, well that's gonna suck, but you can earn it back. Yeah. <laughs> you <be> know. Fine. <laughs> and and I and I think so that's typically, you know, I have these conversations a lot with people who are kind of in that phase, you know, trying to figure out how they sort of gain some traction and get from that, you know, one to two million range up towards kind of the ten million range that people are aspiring to. And and that's typically my advice. is, you know figure out what it is you, you know, figure out what it is you do and put all your effort behind that. Don't, don't worry about trying to get your, you know, trying to dabble in a thousand different things. Don't try to get into a bunch of complicated partnerships, just, you know, kind of keep your head down and focus on strategy, focus on execution.
0: Yeah. I think it's so valuable and I appreciate you being so raw and open with it. Cause like, we weren't, like you said, you didn't even, you weren't even keeping track of you know, when you became an actual millionaire. And, and I've said this so many times until I joined GoBundance, like if I was going to go apply for a commercial loan or something, I'd have to go ask Kara how much money may, I made last year, right? Because I wasn't, I just wasn't tracking any of that. And kind of piggybacking on what you said, I mean, we just did what we did, right? Like I ran a uh, plumbing and AC company and then a construction company and I just bought buildings. The first four buildings that I bought were the same thing as you. Like I was buying them for my businesses, right? We bought one in like. Four weeks later, we outgrew it. Basically, we're on this crazy growth trajectory. So I had to buy a second building and rent the first one. I was like a commercial landlord by default. I didn't even mean to. Right. And so I love the wisdom that you just you know, pointed out there because I think a lot of times somebody sees someone like you or you know, a bunch of other guys in abundance or the gurus are on stage you know, telling them, you know, join the real estate mastermind and here's the ABC one, two, three to getting rich. And the reality is, is like, it's kind of like the hockey stick, right? Like We just do I love what you're saying because it's like, just do a f- the next right thing, do a few things well for a period of time and then start like stacking things up later down the road. That's what we did by default over the course of like 15, 20 years. But people miss that part of it. They don't realize that, you know, you did, you took these little steps for years and years and years and then then things start compounding. It's just like compound interest.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's you know, I'm sure you've heard people, like, have you ever been asked a question, would you rather, you know, would you rather have a slice of a watermelon or all of a grape, right? And that's people, I see, I feel like people ask that question a lot, implying that you'd rather have a part of a really big thing than a, all of a little thing. And I think my answer is kind of like, well, it depends on where you're at. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm, if I'm in the building phase, I'd probably just have, like, to have a couple of grapes that I can completely control and make all the decisions and don't come with all the drama of big watermelons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just going to you know, build my, build my grapes. And then at some point, you know, I probably want to have like 10,000 slices of watermelon, yeah. you know, but like that's down the road, right? Like, yeah. you know, you can't, the, the downside of having a slice of a watermelon is you've relinquished all control at that point. Now you're, you know, now you're kind of riding the wave, so to speak. You know, you don't have the, you know, you're not, you're not able to kind of control your own destiny.
0: Yeah. I love it. You kind of alluded to this, but I saw you put up a post the other day. I think it was on Facebook or something, maybe in the Go GoBundance community, but you said you were grateful for playing Monopoly growing up and you just took your greenhouse and turned it into a hotel. Like, Elaborate on that.
1: Yeah. So we just purchased a 52-room motel. Uh, we closed on it last Thursday. So it's been a week now. And I, in order for the for the capital that I needed for the down payment, I sold the very first duplex that I had bought back in... Uh, I bought it in 99, 98, 99. I forget when. But it was the first house I'd ever bought. I lived in it at the time. I paid a hair over ninety thousand for it, and I sold it just I sold it just a little over a month ago for four hundred and ninety thousand. So, the equity in that in that little green house was my uh, down payment for the hotel.
0: That's amazing, man. That's that's such a such a cool story. Did you 1031 it, or or did you just take the cards off the table? And-
1: no, I just we buy enough real estate that you know I have. I have net operating losses for days. I can, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't have to worry about paying taxes. Yeah. So yeah, we just sold it. We just sold it and we'll, you know, we'll take the gains, but I'll have, I have other losses from, you know, depreciating other real estate that'll offset it.
0: I love that. I don't, Karen, and I got a, a stimulus check, like, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like six months ago or something. And I took a picture of it and um, one of my mentors is like, how in the F did you get a stimulus check? And I'm like, "I I don't know. Like they must've, They must just go off of like, I don't know. I mean, I'm in the same boat as you. I've got so many operating losses and and depreciation and everything on real estate, but I mentioned like, and I've got a great accountant, right? And so I think, I think that's a, I love that you said that. Like I heard Kiyosaki say this the other day. He was, um, I was actually at the Rebel Capitalist Conference and there was all these Bitcoin guys there and they're all moving to Puerto Rico and Peter Schiff and all these guys so that they, you know, don't have to pay taxes. And Robert Kiyosaki said, well, if you'd just invest in real estate, you wouldn't have to relocate your whole family to Puerto Rico because you wouldn't be paying taxes anyway. I'm just like, it's so funny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, what else, man? What else we want to cover that we have? And I appreciate your uh, openness and everything else. I think it's been a great conversation.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Where haven't we been? I don't know. Do you have any other, do you have any thoughts? Anything, do you want any elaboration on anything we've talked about a little bit already?
0: No, I think actually, you know, I think it's been a great, I think it's been a great show. And I think just... You know your openness, and I think people are really looking for. Everybody wants to talk about all their wins and everything else, and I think you've done a really good job of showing every aspect. And as I said in the intro, you're kind of like a, a sniper—like people don't even see you coming. I, you know, it took me a while to really get to know you, but you're a really, really successful guy. And the way you come off, you're just genuine. You're authentic. You are who you are, and I think these are the kind of conversations that are super valuable. Because everybody's always just touting all their successes and wins, but you have done, I think, a really good job of just showing us all sides of it. And that's what I really appreciate about you. You're just a very well-rounded human, so.
1: Yeah, Well, hey, if, if we throw a throw more thing out there, you know, one thing, this is an analogy, I think it was probably actually a David Green analogy that I heard on Bigger Pockets at one point in time, but it really stuck with me and I use this a lot and I, and I probably tell this to other people a lot too. But I think that a lot of people, have a hard time getting going because they feel like they need to have the whole plan in front of them before mm-hmm. they take the first step. And so they, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, people who do this too, you know, they kind of, they get stuck in that analysis phase or in the planning mm-hmm. phase or, you know, they have all these intentions, but they don't, they don't ever get started. And, and the analogy he said that I think really makes sense is it's kind of like driving through fog. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, if, if you know that your goal is to arrive on the other side of the city you don't need to actually know every single turn along the way like if you picture like drive, if you picture driving through fog if you were waiting until you could see all the way through the fog and out the other end before you got going you might never get going but as long as you can see enough ahead of you and you start moving as you move forward you can you know the you know new things keep getting exposed to you right like Mm -hmm. if you have if you've got a thousand feet of view as you drive forward, you still have a thousand feet of view. And so things come. And the trick to driving in fog is you can't drive faster than you can react to the new information you get, right? Mm. So you don't want to start, you wouldn't want to like race through city streets at a hundred miles an hour because you'd never, you know, you, you wouldn't have time to react to the obstacles. But if you just move slow and steady, you as things get revealed to you, you can trust yourself to make the right decision. You know, you turn left, you turn right, you avoid, you know, you avoid the dangers. And I think that running a business or you know, making investments or, you know, really anything you want to do in life is a lot like that. You don't need to know the whole plan. You just have to have a general idea of where you're trying to go. You've got to have a general idea of what your strategy is. And then you just start moving and you don't go so fast that you won't have time to react, but you just have to trust yourself that as you, you know, as you move forward and new information is presented to you, you know, you consider the, you consider the information, you make decisions, you turn left, you turn right, you do what you need to do and you just keep moving forward. And, I mean, that's, I think, ultimately how you, you know, get anywhere.
0: I love it. I've thought, and I think you'll probably appreciate this knowing you. I think a lot of my listeners have probably never driven a vehicle that didn't have power steering, but this is how I see what, like, that fog analogy is amazing. But my first truck didn't have power steering, and it was really hard to turn and adjust mm-hmm. and steer if you're not moving. And that's how I right. think about what you just said. I'm actually going to go back and listen to that part of the conversation because that was that was pretty valuable but i've seen that with power steering for a while i mean if you're not driving you can't steer so you got to get moving start heading the right direction and then we can adjust along the way so super yeah no
1: that's a good that's a good way to put it
0: yeah super valuable conversation man so if people want to reach out to you or have a conversation where's the best way for them to find you
1: well, they can find me on Facebook. You know, I'm just on Facebook as Daniel Casey. You could also, they could also email me. I'm daniel at blackrocknw, like northwest.com. Awesome.
0: Well, I really appreciate your time. And like I said, I've just really grown to really appreciate who you are as a human. You and Shirley are obviously just, I think you're living the whole circle of value and you're a value-driven person. And so I was, I've been excited to have this conversation with you. So thanks for your time.